0: I'm Tom Keane with David Gurra. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: Brian Levitt now, he is a, a senior investment strategist at Oppenheimer Funds, joining us here in the studio in New York. Brian, great to see you. Good morning. Uh, as always. And let's start with the, the central bank news. We can, we can pick up on what just happened here from the Bank of England. Of course, we had the Fed decision uh, yesterday. Let's start there. Uh, how did you react to what we heard from, from the Fed? Um, is March on the table? Are you looking farther ahead to June? What what did you make of the statement that we got from the Fed chair and her colleagues yesterday?
2: I don't think there was anything particularly that exciting about the Fed statement. Um, I don't think we are going to see a rate hike in March. I think the Federal Reserve is going to... Uh, show the market well in advance of what their intentions are. And then the the interest rate probabilities right now are somewhere between 1 and 5 and 1 and 3 percent probability of a rate hike in March. So that's not going to happen. Usually you'll see the Fed closer to 60 percent, 70 percent, 80 percent probability. I mean, we, the Federal Reserve is in, a, in an interesting place in that we are closer to our dual mandate, although inflation um, has improved on the base effects of energy. Core inflation you know, close to 1718, but not, you know, not this high pressure economy, well above 2% and climbing. So we've been in a very prolonged, deleveraging, weak growth environment. We're getting good Signs of inflation, good carry through into wages. To raise interest rates significantly now, when we still have a lot of political uncertainty, does not seem like uh, an appropriate path forward. So March likely off the table. Perhaps we'll see uh, we'll see one before the mid half of the year.
1: You mentioned that dual mandate. You look at that statement for commentary on the labor market. We had this big ADP beat yesterday. We've got the jobs report coming out uh, tomorrow were you surprised that there wasn't more emphasis on or commentary on the labor market in the statement yesterday? I think there was some speculation going into it that we were, if not nearing full employment, at full employment, and perhaps the the committee would be willing to say so.
2: Well, I think the Federal Reserve wants to be data dependent on this. And they, you know, Yellen in the past has talked about a high-pressure economy. Perhaps she walks back from that a little bit. But this idea that we, we still have, um, you know, the U6 unemployment rate is still elevated, and those are people that are temporary for uh, economic reasons. So perhaps we'd like to see, uh, you know, better movement down in that before we think about significantly raising interest rates. But one of the things she, that the FOMC did mention was business confidence, consumer confidence, and all that is appropriate. You are starting to see some animal spirits. But, you know, David, this is what we've hoped for. This yeah. is what we've hoped for for a lot of years. Um, and, you know, I think the Fed could have a couple of rate hikes on the table this year, but to aggressively raise rates into this is probably not appropriate.
1: There's a piece on the Bloomberg this morning I read with with interest. That is, uh, the, the, the contours of a debate over the unemployment rate are shaping up. Tomorrow will be the first jobs report under a Donald Trump presidency. Our colleague Michael McKee saying a couple of days ago, it's still an Obama uh, jobs report. It the survey was taken uh, uh, while he was still uh, in office. Uh, but what do you make of that debate as it shapes up now that uh, you have an administration that is not, let's say, embracing the, the straight unemployment rate? Um, how messy is that going to be potentially?
2: Well, it's disconcerting. I hope um, somebody sits down with the administration and sits down with President Trump and explains that the Bureau of Labor Statistics issues a number of unemployment rates, U1 through U6, U2, my favorite one, Red Hill Mining Town, where the streets have no names, right? (laughs) But, um, you know, U1 through U6. They, we And the headline number we release, what the media focuses on is U3, but the administration or the citizens as a whole doesn't necessarily have to focus on U3. What I always tell clients is pick an unemployment rate and stick to it. Don't bounce back because they tend to move in unison. And, you know, if you think about in 2009, the, the U6, again, which is, includes temporary workers uh, for, for economic reasons, that peaked at 20 percent. It's now down below 10. The U3, which does not include those disenfranchised or temporary workers, peaked close to 10 percent, is now below 5. So they've both been halved. Again, pick an unemployment rate and stick to it. And I hope uh, uh, President Trump's economic advisors can get that through.
1: Let's move to markets here a little bit, we'll come back with you after the break. But uh, a lot yeah. of people at the end of last year told us this was going to be a very earnings-driven market uh, in 2017. We're in earnings season now. What do you make of what we've seen thus far?
2: Well, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the expectations for earnings is that um, you are going to see things that are beneficial to corporate earnings, which is perhaps lower corporate tax rates, deregulation of industry, um, you know, stimulus in the United States. So all of that has favored the more cyclical names in the United States, or at least had uh, heading into the beginning of the year, um, It favored small and mid caps. And, and I think that that's appropriate. This consolidation we're seeing now in markets yeah. is we're, we're dealing with some of the political uncertainties in all of this.
0: I mean, very quickly here, uh, when you look at all this, do you change your allocation to your 401k? Do you just assume lower bond prices, higher yields, and I can't be traditional?
2: Well, I, I think we should be cautious um, extrapolating interest rates going up substantially in the United States. That now that doesn't mean that you know this this recent backdown in rates is going to sustain. I think you know cyclically you will see rates move higher in the U.S., but not substantially. This idea that we're going to break through three on our way to six percent is, in my opinion, widely overstated. There are secular forces that are likely to keep rates low in the United States and around a lot of the developed world. Not the least of which is mm-hmm. aging populations and, and, and high savings rates in Asia. So um, you might want to reduce the interest rate sensitivity of your portfolio. You probably, at this point in the cycle, want to look to credit, senior loans, but um, But um, I don't think that you need to extrapolate that we're going – that we now, because we're in a 40-year bull market in bonds, now have to go into a 40-year bear market in bonds.
1: We're here with Brian Levitt, senior investment strategist at Oppenheimer Funds, David Gura, and Tom Keene in New York. And and, uh, as Michael Barr mentioned – just a few moments ago, Donald Trump tweeting this morning. We're not going to go through all of the tweets that he fired off, but it makes me wonder sort of how this has changed uh, your investment calculus. How much do you have to pay attention to that? How much are you paying attention to the to the political news? And uh, does it change the way that you strategize?
2: Well, we've spent years telling investors that hating the government or loving the government is not an investment strategy. And I think that played out as you watch the futures come in when Trump looked like he was about, looked like he was going to win and then the, the rally that you had in the aftermath of that. I think that there's a base case And a base case says that this should be good for cyclicals in the United States, and this should be good for smaller and mid-sized companies. Um, But I think there's some tail risks in all of it. And we've got to be mindful of the tail risks, not the least of which is that, you know, protectionism or trying to support U.S. is strong dollar, and that could lead to a slowdown in U.S. economic activity.
0: Nicely said about tail risks. And one of the things, Brian, that is in everything we do, is we've forgotten what an all-American correction is and also an all-American bear market. It's been ages, hasn't
2: it? It has been ages. We've, we've been in a secular bull market that began on March 9th, 2009. And despite the fact that investors have uh, fought kicking and screaming the whole way, um, and a lot of uh, American households are still not participating it, at this point where we are today in February uh, 2017, this is among the longest in duration and one of the, the biggest in terms of advance that we've seen in U.S. history. But that doesn't mean it has to be yeah. over anytime soon.
1: You had a note about uh, Dow 20,000. We marked that here on surveillance with a cold <laughs> duck and some flat champagne. But <laughs> warm, warm, cold duck. Warm, cold duck, flat champagne.
0: I went to Gourmet Magazine. That's, <laughs> how, that's how they said this, sir. <laughs> That's how they said to prepare it. Warm,
1: cold uh, What was your takeaway from it? Uh, we, we, we've moved on. i those a couple days ago. <laughs> we but, have uh, What was I mean, the significance of it as you saw it?
2: well I think we we kind of wanted a blog about it in a way to, to sort of make joke about how we celebrated in in March 1999 Dow 10,000 and then we had to do it again in uh, 2009 when we crossed 10,000 again um, but I the point being is that indices in and of themselves don't tell us much they're they're not mean reverting um, as Tom showed on uh, on the television program mm-hmm. earlier that you know indices reflect an improving human condition and improving condition for for businesses so they don't have to mean revert as you all know far more are interesting to compare the price level of an index to a fundamental characteristic of a business whether you want to use book value sales earnings um, you yeah. look at valuations there they're above fair value but 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 right. not but not significantly particularly when you compare them to the interest rate environment can
0: we look Brian at a sharp ratio again are we getting back to bond normalcy where we actually have a risk-free rate i'm not sure it's out there somewhere
2: we we do we have a risk-free rate um and you know investors are you know always looking for what the you know what how they can get the best sharp ratio in their portfolio i always think i can't eat sharp ratio right i can eat returns um but you know for investors that are looking for returns um with a with a more reasonable level of volatility it certainly isn't a reasonable approach um and you know equities um, generally offer pretty good uh, you know mm-hmm. risk adjusted returns compared to most other asset classes.
1: Outside of equities, what are you looking at? What do you like uh, at this point?
2: Well, as I mentioned earlier, we we like um, senior loans and we like uh, bonds outside the United States, particularly in the emerging markets. Um, you know, for investors that are trying to generate income, it's difficult when 10 years only around 2-4, um, inflation's not all that far away from that, there's not a lot of real yield and you're worried that interest rates rise and the bo- Treasury's going to issue new bonds and nobody's going to want your paltry yielding bonds. So senior loans is credit exposure. We think we're in, still in a good place in the credit cycle, um, those loans adjust to keep pace with short-term interest rates so not a lot of interest rate sensitivity no. and you know very interesting is looking outside the united states and some of the emerging markets places that were in recession or recovering right. um where you can still get attractive real yields
0: brian thank you so much yeah, Thank you. very thank you. generous of your time today brian Lovett with us who uh the vector still points higher and we've heard that from a number of guests uh, this week Right now, someone that knows presidential comments, um, Al Broadus, uh, joining us, former president of the Richmond Fed. Uh, Al, wonderful to speak to you as we juggle between Governor Carney and the president. Take us back, as only Al Broadus can, to a strong dollar discourse. There was a time where every other day, someone besides Al Broadus was talking about strong dollar policy. Is that a good thing to have officials jawboning the dollar ever higher?
3: Well, I think uh, you know. Uh, first, good morning, uh, Tom. I think uh, it, it it depends to some extent on the context and the and the tone. I mean, it, 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 often uh, senior officials, uh, often the Treasury Secretary, have made sort of generic uh, uh, comments uh, in the same way. Our policy is to. To have a strong dollar, but uh, that is has often been interpreted as we are not going to try to we're going to try to follow economic policies that result in a strong dollar, as opposed yeah. to trying right. to manipulate the dollar either verbally or through some sort of intervention. And, and I right. think I think that's a good thing uh, when you but but you know it's a thin line here, and if you begin to move into right. an arena where you're doing something more than that, then it then it can yeah. be upsetting. And I think that's what has been going on in currency markets most <laughs> most
0: recently. Uh, David. Ger- jump in here with Al Broadus. I just want to point out the president sitting now at the breakfast. I believe he's having fresh squeezed Mexican orange oh, juice with his Australian <laughs> Marmite jam. <Yeah. laughs> there
1: go. He is going to eat before he speaks. Again, we're continuing to monitor uh, that speech. Uh, Al Broadus, let me ask you about the political pressure on the Fed right now. There was so much commentary about the Federal Reserve on the campaign trail. Now uh, we see the contours shaping up of a fight on Capitol Hill over control of the Federal Reserve or more, more control uh, over its actions. Uh, is this a new kind of pressure? Is this something that you saw when you were there uh, at the Richmond Fed?
3: Well, we had, uh, you know, the Fed has had pressure of, uh, from political pressure in one form or another throughout much of its history, certainly its recent history. I would say it sort of ebbs and flows uh, uh, in many, as uh, I look back, I uh, I was in the Fed for 30-some years, but Uh, actually a member of the FOMC and and at the senior level uh, of the organization only between 1993 and 2004. And through most of that period, uh, I I thought that pressure was was moderate. I guess in the early part of it, during uh, part of the H.W. Bush administration, there was some pressure. And there was always a little bit of pressure after that, but nothing nothing, uh, too extreme. Now, it, uh, currently, it seems it seems to me that uh, that it seems to be ramping up. You've got uh, several pieces of legislation in Congress that would uh, would impinge, I think, on the Fed, Fed's independence. There's a lot of talk. Of course, we don't know what what it's going to lead to about uh, uh, Chairman Yellen or Chair Yellen. Uh, her term is up next year, about a year from now, and so there's obviously speculation uh about whether she will be able to stay or whether she will be uh replaced. So a lot of a lot of mm. political talk. Uh, about the Fed now more than normal, I think, and uh, frankly, for me at least, a little bit concerning.
1: On the matter of, of personnel, we we got word that uh, Jeffrey Lacker, your successor, is going to be uh, stepping down from that job. And when we got that news, Tom and I talked about the, the the special quality of Richmond Fed presidents. There there is some something of regional importance to the folks who've been in that job. You're from Richmond yourself, Jeffrey Lacker, from uh, Lexington. Who would you like to see in that job? Is there something special about the Richmond Fed president?
3: Well, you know, I I, I don't know that there's anything. Well, we'd uh, like to think that we've had, I think we've had, I hope you would agree, strong presidents over yep. a period of time. Jeff has done a very fine job, in my view. I might, uh, We don't always agree on everything, <laughs> but I certainly uh, agree on much of, uh, of his uh, program. Uh, I would like to, I think one thing that has uh, hopefully distinguished the Fed, uh, the Richmond Fed, is we've always had, people with good grounding in economics, Mm. uh, and who have felt that uh, the policies that we advocate and the positions on particular policy questions that we support are well-grounded in uh, economics and in economic research. Uh, I think it's been the case, at least for the last three presidents, that we have maintained a strong research department. Uh, For example, when I was president, my and, and, and part of uh, Jeff's uh, presidency, we uh, had a uh, Marvin Goodfriend, uh, a distinguished monetary economist, was uh, at the bank. He was my chief advisor. He's now at Carnegie Mellon University. In any event, I felt I had really high-quality mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, advice and uh, it was able to form solid positions. So I hope that that tradition right. will be continued.
0: Okay. You're way too kind. <laughs> the Richmond Fed has a research depth, and particularly on zero-sum economics, like nobody. Forget about algebraic production functions and their uses (laughs) before Cobb-Douglas. How could one forget? One, Thomas M. Humphrey, who I've read everything he's ever read, spring of 1999, he wrote this for President Trump, Al, Mercantilists and Classicals, Insights from doctrinal history. Do we have a president who wants to hearken back to the mercantilism that Thomas Humphrey owns within his research?
3: I don't. Uh, uh, I don't think any of us. Oh, oh, you mean, do we have a president of the United States?
0: Yes. (laughs) Do we have (laughs) a president? Yes, the president of the United States.
3: Even though I'm no longer at the Fed, I do try to be careful not to get too deeply involved in political commentary. But uh, the short answer that I would give you is it it is a concern for me, anyway.
0: Define for our audience what's wrong with saying America first.
3: Uh, I don't there is anything wrong with saying America first, Uh, you know, different people will mean different things when they say America first. Uh, And I can't speak for President Trump, I can only speak for myself. I want America to be first among a group of very strong nations and, uh, and, and trading partners. So that uh, our strength contributes to the strength of other economies, and uh, and and vice versa. And this is, you know, gets to the point of a a, a mutually beneficial trading regime. You mentioned Tom Humphrey; I think he would support what I'm saying pretty strongly. Uh, So that's that's a world that we have been moving towards. I think throughout the post-war period. Uh, I hope that we continue to do that. Uh, and we'll just have to, have to see how the current administration uh, evolves uh, uh, against that that kind of criterion. There's
0: a lot of
1: talk on Capitol Hill about making the Fed more data-dependent, having more rules-based Federal Reserve. You, you sat in the Eccles Building around that giant table. Uh, how difficult would that be as a policymaker to be uh, more tightly tied to, to rules?
3: Well, I think that uh, there's something to be said. Well, first, let me uh, say this: there are we uh, we use something called the Taylor Rule as a guide to policy, uh, and my own view is that that is is often beneficial. And I think uh, uh, you know, continuing in in that vein in conducting policy would be a good thing. If we were if uh, if a particular monetary policy implementation operational rule were mandated. Uh, I would have some concerns uh, about that. To put it mildly, I think the key, First of all, not, you'd need to know what the rule is. Yeah. If, it's, if it's rigid, doesn't allow any discretion uh, in in particular situations, that could be a uh, that could well, be a problem. I think for the Fed. let
0: Let's go, uh, Al Brotis, Thank you so much for the primer, and again, a major shout out to the work of. Uh, Of The Richmond Fed on uh, Mr. Broadus's watch. Got to get him back here. It was great. uh, They are in search of a new president. I believe John Tucker's on the short list there. (laughs) Really? Well. (laughs) Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch Pierce Fenner and Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. Anytime we speak with Craig Moffat of Moffat Nathanson, there's forty-five to seventy themes that we can uh, work on. Today we're going to focus on one, one, one theme. Craig Moffat on Verizon: Is my cell phone bill too high? Is is, is it a a, a duopoly or triopoly where we're all getting taken to the cleaners every month? (laughs) Well, I'll tell
4: you, if if this is a duopoly or triopoly, it's not working very well for the triopolists. Um, Uh Verizon right now is struggling with Uh, mid-single-digit negative revenue growth in its wireless business. AT&T is struggling with mid-single-digit revenue uh, declines in its wireless business. Sprint is struggling with revenue declines in its wireless business. The only operator that's growing in wireless right now is T-Mobile, which is a very price competitive and aggressive competitor. So um, by all outward signs, if this isn't a competitive industry, then I don't know what is.
1: Can you overlay what we learned from Apple this week onto that? Apple announcing they sold 3.5 million phones to new uh, customers. Where are these new customers going for wireless service?
4: Well, remember the the short answer is not the United States. Um, interestingly, um, the the upgrade cycle, that is how quickly people are replacing their their smartphones in the United States, is still lengthening. Um, when there's a new iPhone, that tends to to shorten it. Temporarily, but there's no question that the trend has been people keeping their phones longer. Um, and there are a couple of obvious reasons for that, right? One is the real innovation in smartphones today is coming from the software, not the hardware. So, and people are able to upgrade the software relatively easily. Um, uh, but also the change in the way phones are paid for with the elimination of the old subsidy plans and the yeah. replacement with people buying their own phones gives people a natural incentive yeah. to say I want to keep my old phone longer.
0: I mean David to Craig's point, I love this sentence. This is professional security analysis folks. AT and T's results were nearly impenetrable. I mean, that's just bizarre. With organic revenue growth, that's it's negative single digit. I mean, that's grim, David.
1: Yeah, it's grim. And, and uh, Craig, I wanted to know what the path forward is for AT&T, as, as you see it, of course, is the ongoing merger discussion and all of the antitrust stuff associated uh, with it. But w- what's your sense here of where this company's headed?
4: Well, you know, it's interesting. Let's compare and contrast AT&T and Verizon for a second. Um, AT&T has made some very clear bets on – uh, media writ large, right? They they first uh, acquired DirecTV in a in an acquisition that, sixty seven billion dollars, including debt that um, that took them in the direction of the traditional pay TV business, and now they're buying Time Warner. Um, by most accounts, they're really diversifying away from the wireless business. Verizon um, has made very small little moves. Um, first AOL and Yahoo, big big brand names, I suppose in some people's minds, but tiny little moves in the grand scheme of things. Um, and so they've really stood pat, and they're they're investing more in the wireless business. Their, their big transaction was a couple of years ago, where they bought in the other half of Verizon Wireless from Vodafone. Um, you couldn't have two more diametrically dip- opposed strategies, and. The market right now is very enamored with AT&T's boldness in, in making a big move and wants Verizon to do the same thing, do something big, whatever it is. Um, but it's easy to imagine how that narrative will get turned on its head if it turns out that the big, bold move that AT&T made, particularly TV. It turns out to have been the wrong move. Um, what if it turns out that what AT&T really yeah. needs, for example, isn't a satellite TV business in a, in a um, declining pay TV industry, but instead is a bunch of wires to support their next generation wireless business, so cell and what have you. Have
0: you ever been more uncertain, quickly here, Craig, have you ever been more uncertain about the wireless monopoly and the wireless certitude of cash flow?
4: Well, I, I've never seen it as a monopoly. Um, but I, And to, to be fair, I've always had real reservations about the structural yeah. attractiveness of the wireless business. Yeah. Um, and so uh, to me, this is, this is exactly the outcome that anyone yeah. would have expected, which is you have a relatively unattractive industry structure um, mm. that was papered over for a long time by the fact that you just had rapid growth yeah. in the category. But once the category hit a wall, like it really did in about the end of 2013 or so, and everybody had a smartphone, this industry has been has been yeah. a, a very, very poor place to make returns.
0: And you were way out front in that, Craig Moffat. Thank you so much, Moffat, Nathan said... Bring in Jordan right now. We're waiting for the president. There, it's it's a, it's a lengthy introduction. It's a it's lengthy a, introduction. It
1: is. This is a, many speak interdenominational, interreligious event here, the National Prayer Breakfast, which has been going on for the. Better part of half a century, uh, and so we have uh, yeah. we have various religious leaders speaking now. The president there on the dais; he'll be speaking soon. And as Tom said, we'll bring that uh, those comments to you live as soon as they begin. Until then, though, let's talk to Jordan Rochester. He's forex strategist at Namura, joining yeah. us on the Spectrum Enterprise phone line. Spectrum Enterprise nationwide fiber based network and IT infrastructure solutions. And Jordan, let me start just by getting your reaction to what we learned from the Bank of England uh, this morning. There's the uh, no move, no change to policy, some revision to the to the forecast to commentary about inflation. Uh, Give us your take on what we saw this morning.
5: Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me on, guys. So, I've got to say to Mr. Mark Carney at the Bank of England, well done, sir. They managed to upgrade their GDP forecasts from what was a very low level in November at the last update we had to what is, you know, a pretty healthy number for the UK. You know, the trend growth is around 2% year on year in the UK, and they've revised the forecast to just, you know, around that level. Um, But The the main thing for markets was, will the Bank of England raise their inflation forecast profile? What they did, though, was they lowered the natural rate of unemployment estimate in their modeling, which allowed them more slack in the labor market. So therefore, in fact, their inflation forecast, rather than going up, as some had hoped for, uh, and the rates market was hoping perhaps for a bit more of a hawkish tone from that front, they revised them lower in the long run.
1: What is it, you know, On that note, we have these revisions. Uh, we have Mark Carney uh, saying today, the governor of the Bank of England, uh, saying the Brexit journey is really just beginning. How much credence do you place in these forecasts amid all the revisions, amid all the changes, amid all the uncertainty about what happens to the UK economy?
5: Um, I think the reporter in the Q&A of that press conference asked a very good question. Uh, they asked... Mark Carney, look, the forecast you made when you cut interest rates uh, in reaction to Brexit have been proven so far to be wrong. How can you have any confidence in the forecast you're making today to be right? Uh, He didn't really answer that question in any way Mm. around it. But of course, there is a lot of uncertainty. And what the market's struggling to do, and it's the same with the US and what's going on with Donald Trump, is we know how to trade and price for what rates market's going to do to typical economic indicators. But we are not so great at at forecasting the impact of politics. So the uncertainty of all of everyone's forecasts from the Fed, the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan, anyone, their, their forecasts are a mercy to the political developments going on. And Brexit is a very good example of how things yeah. can go pretty well, or in fact, they could go quite badly.
0: I haven't asked this question in a while, Jordan, and frankly, folks, we should ask it once a week, once every two weeks. What's the bet now on the street? You can look at the positioning. Of investors, there's a lot of fancy calculations done on this folks, but Jordan Rochester, what is the foreign exchange bet right now?
3: in terms of sterling in yes, terms,
0: whichever way you want to go, what is, what is the most extended bet that's out there
5: I tell you what it's got to be the long dollar view after donald trump 's uh, victory. I think that is starting to turn, and the conversation we 're having with clients is we 're talking about how actually protectionism from Donald Trump is actually a negative for the dollar, and whilst the good stuff about tax cuts and tax reform will probably take place during this uh, this year, it's more of the second half of the year story, and it might not be as good as the market thinks it, it's going to be. And the protectionism is something that Donald Trump can do a lot faster. The president doesn't need permission from Congress mm-hmm. to throw tariffs on China, for example, and that's actually, against the consensus, we believe that's a dollar negative. So for now, we're actually short dollar yen. Uh, we think that could definitely get down to 110 in the next couple of sessions, and even lo- even lower, perhaps, if Donald Trump keeps going right. down the way he's going.
0: And to be clear, folks, when uh, Mister Rochester says "short dollar yen," you're implying a stronger yen and a weaker dollar, right?
1: That's right. I I, I love the line the line in your note that Super Tuesday might be better n- renamed Average Average Thursday. Super Thursday, <laughs> renamed Average Thursday. What's your What's your outlook for sterling at this point? What do you think it could test?
5: So. A lot of the recent move in sterling, sterling's headed higher against the dollar, for example, and against the euro. A lot of it was not due to any fundamental change in the UK outlook, it was for positioning reduction. A lot of people got very short in sterling and were hoping for like parity from some on the street I've seen against the dollar. Um, what what's happened now is the Bank of England has said, look, we are revised lower our assumption of the unemployment rate, we're not hiking this year, and that removes that, a bit of that uncertainty uh, from the market. So I think sterling heads lower from here, really. Uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to play it by buying the euro and selling the pound rather than against the dollar, because, again, like I said, we, I think there could be a weak dollar uh, policy coming from the Trump administration any day now.
1: You mentioned the, 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 the change here. You're having to pay more attention to politics. How's that changing the dynamics of Forex generally? Uh, a lot of pressure here to get a, a better sense of the pulse, the political pulse. How are you doing that? How's that changing just the way that you and others operate?
5: How's it changed? I guess we spend a, a little bit less time on tracking the data and a little bit more time on updating our Twitter feed, to <laughs> put it bluntly. <laughs> you would be both, four so that, that's Trump fair to say, yeah. 4 a.m. He tends to tweet between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. in London time, so whenever we wake up, we uh, find out what's going on. I mean, this morning was uh, the tweets of Australia, for example, um, and, and yeah, that's the sort of change in the way we have to operate, I guess.
0: Are you from Australia, Jordan?
5: No, I can do a great Australian accent. <laughs>
0: okay. I just was going to ask that's you right. what you thought of the, what you thought of the, uh, the news. Well, we'll wait that for another uh, Well, I'm having a great time,
5: Tom. Oh, it's it, good. good. Very brilliant. Good. Yeah. You, Jordan, you,
0: you <laughs> talked about a strong yen. Hey, Brit, you over there? <laughs> Where, okay, enough. Come on, crocodile, calm down. <laughs> Jordan, help me here with strong yen. Where does strong yen impinge Mr. Abe?
5: So, if you get below 110, it's still okay. It's down to 105 against the dollar when you start to get a bit more noise. However, typically what would happen is when the dollar yen gets to 105, we're currently around. 112. Uh, The the, the, the officials from Japan start talking about currency moves uh, are unwarranted, or they start verbally intervening, which is just nothing. It's just commentary. Um, 105 against the dollar used to be the the level where people said this is Abe's line. But I think with the Trump administration's focus on currency manipulation, you may see less of that. So for Abe, it's if you get below 95 when people start to say the Arbonomics trade's over.
1: Help us with the, with the strength of the dollar. We we're having a conversation uh, throughout the week, really, about the comments that Peter Navarro made uh, to the FT, uh, Peter Navarro, the head of the new Trade Council, the White House Trade Council. Uh, how did you interpret those? What does that say to you about the the, the, the degree to which this administration is going to regard or talk about uh, the dollar?
5: they got to talk it down, uh, and that's pretty clear. Uh, it's something we were expecting anyway, uh, and it's starting to bear fruit. In terms of against the euro and the German manipulation of the currency uh, points, let's remember, when we talk about the ECB, for example, who is the you know, the one side of the MPC committee who's always talking about the upside risks to inflation? It's Germany. So if you're talking about Germany manipulating uh, the euro to their benefit, it's just incorrect. Um, the Germans are the ones who are the more, more hawkish members of the ECB council. So, um, what it does tell me about the Trump administration is they will be very protectionist yeah. and at the same time want a weaker dollar. That put it that simply, and they can do it. If they impose tariffs on any of their trading partners, that's a clear yeah. way to do it.
0: Jordan, thank you for the update. Jordan Rochester. And the uh, accent. And right. it was a
5: good accent.
1: It was... I, Yeoman's it was good, work, I thought.
0: Jordan <laughs> Rochester this morning. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gurra is at David Gurra. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.